0: on air, online, on digital radio and television and on the ABC Listen app The Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern
1: Tasmania Great to have you along this lunch hour hope you can stick around too because we've got a packed program looking at everything from Better Milk's factory closure in Burnie to supermarkets building their dominance in home brand booze
2: You know, small business has so much more to lose than the, you know, supermarket players. They just go out and redesign another product.
1: And there's optimism markets for sheep and lamb will recover.
3: The price has come off, but it's in the face of strong supply. And and the reason probably why it hasn't come off as much is because um, the demand uh, out there on the export space is still pretty robust.
1: We'll chew the fat on prices and what's behind the recent dip in the next twenty minutes. Love to hear your feedback too four three eight nine double two nine three six is the number to text in this afternoon. Well, let's start in the state's Northwest because the head of Bega Group admits there were too many issues to resolve to keep its better milk factory in Burnie open. Close to 50 employees across the state's north will be affected by the closure. Bega purchased Better Milk and Meander Valley Dairy Brands for $11 million late last year, but the plant itself has been operating for nearly 70 years. I spoke to the company's Executive Chairman, Barry Irvin.
4: Uh, yes, well, unfortunately we've had to make a rather sobering um, announcement to our staff that we'll need to close that. That site. Um, unfortunately, obviously we've we bought that site you know, in the second half of last year, and the uh, Better Milk brand, and and um, and all the dairy operations, or the majority of the dairy operations of Taz Foods. Um, we were aware the the site was under a little stress, but um, you know, as we've as we've been working with it, uh, or working and had our team in there um it's become obvious to us that the site's sort of operating at below capacity the safety issues and environmental issues there and we've thought that the 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 best thing to do for the longer term was to actually amalgamate that site into our site at Lena Valley in Hobart
1: how many people are currently employed at the plant
4: so there'll be 23 staff at the Burnie plant that will disappointingly lose their positions and, and then there will be some other, other positions that also go at our distribution um, centres at Launceston and Kingsmeadow as we consolidate the distribution operations of the, of the business as well.
1: So quite a substantial number.
4: Yes. Yeah, so, so, look, it's been a, a pretty sobering day as we sort of think around. Uh, basically, for northern Tasmania, there'll be um, 50, 50 positions lost um, as a result of this consolidation. But, um, unfortunately, I think, you know, I think it was fairly obvious to to, to a number that, that, that the um, site has been struggling in recent times and, um, and really, you know, what we want to make sure that we're focusing on is that we, that we continue to have um, the Better Milk brand well serviced and that we service it for, um, you know, in, a, in a manner that makes sure that we continue to support, you know, the, the, this great popular brand, particularly in northern Tasmania.
1: Was there any way to redeploy some of those staff to your Lena Valley plant?
4: Yes, so we will be talking to our staff. Obviously, we're you know t- today is a very sobering day for for those staff, and so you know, and obviously we'll be making sure that we that that, we, that they receive all their entitlements and that. Um, that we that we give them as much support as we can um, but we will including talking about redeployment opportunities where where that makes sense but obviously that won't be something that's attractive to, to people that are settled in northern Tasmania and and, and, uh, and there'll be only limited positions that we'd be able to offer there but we will be talking to them and we're actually having one-on-one discussions with those, with each of the employees um, today to, to talk about you know how we can help them without placement. Whether there's any opportunities for redeployment and and, and what the arrangements will be um, in the in the short term until we do, do execute the closure of the site.
1: Was the factory financially running at a loss?
4: Oh, we don't. In terms of, we're obviously a publicly listed company, so we don't break down our individual sites. But it, but I think it's fair to say that it was uh, it was a site that was not um, that was that, that was not performing well financially.
1: It had an eleven million dollar price tag purchasing that asset plus the brands so at the time you must have you must have done your due diligence to 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 purchase this
4: so the purchase price included the brands so so we so so we were so as as we paid that that price we were obviously very conscious of you know the very good and very historic better milk brand and, and the other associated brands and and the site um but unfortunately i think in terms of value, we, we um, the, the site created a number of concerns for us um, as we began the operation.
1: How much milk is processed there?
4: Um, It's a little over 10 million litres of milk.
1: And will that volume of milk now make the journey to Lena Valley?
4: Uh, so our, all our milk sourcing arrangements that we have in place, we will keep in place, yes.
1: So no farmers will be affected by this move? No. And you'll still keep the better branded milk as a brand?
4: Yes, our intention is, look, um, we, we really like the Better Milk brand and I think you know, our intention would be to try and support the Better Milk brand even more strongly, particularly in, nor- in, in, the, in the northern part of Tasmania. So yes, the Better Milk brands um, I think, are, are going to be a, an important part of our brand portfolio going forward.
1: Will the Lena Valley plant be able to support an extra, extra 10 million litres of milk uh, coming through the, the factory doors?
4: Yes, we'll be making some, some, some investments at Lena Valley, but yes, I think that and obviously that's what we, what we ultimately had to analyse, and, uh, and we think there's a, you know, a, a great opportunity to make Lena Valley more efficient by adding that volume, and then we will make some investments at
2: Lena.
1: So, what will you do with the plant now uh, in Burnie? Is it going to be
4: leased or, or sold? So we were so some of the equipment in um, in the Bernie site we will have uses for across our network, and we did in fact lease the site, so the site was um, was, was only leased it wasn 't owned by us so.
1: Barry Irvin is the executive chairman of the Beaker Group. Robert Flanagan is the Acting Secretary for the Tasmanian branch of the Australian Workers' Union. He says the union met with the Better Milk employees this morning after speaking to both Fonterra and Saputo about the potential to take on those who have been affected.
5: Obviously, um, the announcement is a very significant uh announcement in terms of its impact on, on the workforce. Um, there are some employees that have worked there for up to 30 years, so um, a massive impact. Um, a very disappointing announcement uh, for both the workers and the Burnie community. The Better Milk facility's been there for 70 years and it's been part of the fabric of Burnie. Um, so it's a very disappointing announcement. Um, we understand that, um, the company believed that the ageing infrastructure was a factor that uh, led to its uh, decision, but um, our preference would have been that they invested in updating the facility and kept the jobs in regional Tasmania.
6: Are there any estimates of what that would have cost?
5: No, we have no idea what that would have cost, but uh, you know, the the factory has been there for a long time and was obviously viable, um, so we think an update would have been appropriate rather than a closure. In the dairy sector, we hope is a, an opportunity for growth going forward rather than seeing an operation closed.
6: Now, it is election time, so of course we've got politicians falling over themselves to offer support to these workers, but is there any hope
2: for them?
5: Look, we have contacted both Saputo and Fonterra. Saputo is literally next door to the Better Milk factory, and uh, Fonterra have operations uh, at Wynyard and Spraton. Both of those companies have been quite receptive in terms of looking at what employment opportunities they might have available to uh, assist the workers at Better Milk. And given the skill set the employees have at Better Milk, they uh, should be readily transferable to both Saputo and Fonterra's operations. So that's actually been a, a very positive response from those two companies, which we appreciate.
6: Mm, that's great news there, although it is a lot of workers to take on all of a sudden for those companies
5: yes well um there's there's twenty three employees that are impacted at uh the burning factory um so um those employees would still need to go through a recruitment process, but as I said, given their skill set, they should be well placed. Um, for for that process and well, we do hope that they may be able to pick up the majority of those people you know, th- spread across both Sapedo and Fonterra. Uh, we hope there's enough employment opportunities there for them. Uh, we know that um, the factories are due to close uh, around the 15th of March and we know that they'll maintain a sort of skeleton workforce of four to five people for another month after that, so it's very imminent. The uh, company have obviously uh, looked at the situation in a lot of detail uh, for what they call the transitional arrangements and time frames are pretty uh, imminent.
6: Mm, Our thoughts are certainly with those those people, sounds pretty rough. Uh, Any other updates, Robert?
5: Uh, no, look, we'll be continuing to have discussions, uh, with, uh, BEGA in relation to the impact, uh, on the employees that are displaced and also what it means for the Lennon Valley operations, whether the milk will be transferred to, uh, for processing going forward. Um, so we'll continue with those discussions and, uh, see where they take us.
1: Robert Flanagan there from the Tasmanian branch of the Australian Workers' Union, talking there to Meg Powell. Next on the program, the rise of private label alcohol owned by the major supermarkets.
0: Tasmania Votes 2024. Look after the Adelaide. Simple
5: as that.
1: Join Leon Compton and the Mornings team on the road at Brighton in the seat of Lions as we start to cross the state to get a feel for what you think the issues are that will decide your vote in the state election. We need more doctors. The candidates, the issues and you. I just want someone to be honest. Leon Compton on the road this Thursday morning from 8.30.
0: Tasmania Votes 2024 on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. It's the Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: We're at 17 past 12. The Four Corners program on the ABC last night looked at the tactics used by supermarkets to keep prices high and competition out. One startling example described by former chair of the AC Rod Sims as misleading advertising is Coles' home brand, Two Churches Wine.
0: You may not realize it, but Coles is a big player in wine. I've come to the Coles owned vintage cellars to pick up a bottle of red. There's no shortage of choice. But like many consumers, I go for a mid-priced wine at eye level. Just that one, thanks. Oh, yeah. So I decided on this one, the Two Churches Preacher Shiraz. I really like the label, but what really got me was a story on the back. It tells the tale of German immigrants coming to South Australia of two Lutheran priests who fell out and built rival churches at opposite ends of the same village. Online, it's promoted as a tale from the Barossa Valley, where the priests disagreed on almost everything except the quality of grapes grown in the now-famous wine region. so I'm here in the Barossa to find out where these grapes are growing. There it is. So this is it, the Light Pass Emanuel Church, just like on the bottle here. And over there, that's the rival church. It's just such a great story. Is this the home of Two Churches? I couldn't tell you that from this bottle. Adrian Hoffman is a fifth-generation grape grower from the Barossa and says there's no Two Churches vineyard around here. I think they're sort of misleading the consumer to a certain degree. It sounds like a Barossa story, but um, yeah, you can't be guaranteed it's Barossa fruit, unfortunately. so. So where is the home of Two Churches wine? What about the address on the back? What does that tell me? Well, that's that's the first thing I'd sort of go to. You, you look at where it's produced and um, this says it's uh, Hawthorne East Victoria. So here I am in suburban Melbourne. Turns out this is the closest there is to a home for the two churches Shiraz. Not that it says Coles anywhere on the bottle. Coles says it has around 260 private label wines available through its liquor stores. I mean, the test under law is, would a reasonable consumer be misled? Now, if
7: on the label of the bottle, you're telling a story that's unrelated to the product, then I think that runs a serious risk of being misleading.
0: Why not put your name on it? Why not say it's Coles Shardy or Supermarket Shiraz? Why are you hiding the fact that you own this brand?
6: So uh, in terms of communicating uh, with customers, uh, there are practices across many retailers and many industries where Take that point.
0: Shouldn't you say, shouldn't you be honest with the consumer and say this is a Coles wine?
6: But why do it? We're very comfortable that the branding approach that we have in our liquor brands is one that resonates with customers.
0: After our interview, Coles removed any reference to the Barossa from its online promotion of two churches.
1: Coles' CEO, Leah Weckett, speaking to Four Corners reporter, Angus Grigg. Well, another one of the areas where the duopoly is gaining market power is private label spirits like gin and branding it similar to a boutique label. Kathleen Davies runs an online business that sells and wholesales Australian spirits, and she reckons it's a deceptive move.
2: What I've noticed is when gins you know, become very popular, then there's all these home brands that come out as well and private labels playing in the gin space. I think what it does show is that there is a growing demand for Australian spirits, which is fantastic. We still have very small market share compared to, I guess, our, our friends in the global space where the imported uh, spirit space, but it is showing that Australian consumers are uh, wanting a taste for Australian-made spirits.
1: Does the market dominance of the retailers in home brand booze disadvantage in any way boutique distilleries in Australia?
2: I believe it does because years ago when, when supermarkets would launch a home brand on the shelf, whether it be food or drink, it was very obvious who the home brands were. If you remember back, Black and Gold, um, they would even have their supermarket name on those products, uh, now they're more or less mimicking small business and you know, acting like a small handcrafted craft brand. And it's very deceiving to uh, consumers because they're no longer uh, as obvious as what they used to be.
1: But they're not breaking any rules doing this though, are they?
2: No, they're not. They're not. But if they fail, they don't lose their house. When a small business fails, you know, the people that are investing in the brand to build a truly handcrafted brand could lose their house if their, their, their brand fails. Um, you know, small business has so much more to lose than the, you know, supermarket players. They just go out and redesign another product. They've got a whole team behind them. They have all of the, insights from sales from marketing data they know what uh, shelf position works best for their brands they know what bottle shape works best based on competitive data that they have they have so much more of an advantage over a small player in the market uh, who is you know launching a craft spirit into the Australian marketplace.
1: And you represent a lot of those players how do they feel about the supermarket presence in in the boutique uh, spirits space?
2: Like a lot of people won't speak up about it because um, no one wants to hurt their relationships with the national retailers. Um, so to a certain extent, the small players have to just play along with it. I think I know um, friends that work in um, You know, global companies are very upset by it because, you know, they're more or less using their data to compete with them as well and take market share from them. But um, at the end of the day, I think it's the smaller businesses that are really suffering from this. You know, I I walked into uh, one of the major retailers the other day and looked at the Australian Spirit Shelf area and I asked them, oh how's how's this area going and and the and the worker just basically said, "Oh, not that good." and i said and and I'm used to seeing a lot of these brands that don't work collect dust and then end up in the bargain bin, and you know it really ruins brand equity for these small um, producers. And I said, "What brand is actually doing well?" And they pointed to the supermarket private label, and I didn't know it was actually a private label till I picked it up and recognised the producer on the back. Because it was cheaper? Um, Because it was cheaper. And I thought, how could someone produce this so cheaply? Like, especially from, um, you know, this particular line that I was looking at was made in Tasmania. And I thought, this is very cheap for a Tasmanian product.
1: Do they have their place in the market if the, the gin is still being produced in Australia and still employing Australians?
2: Yes, I do. I think... I think there needs to be more transparency, though, around who actually owns it. I think at the moment it's a little bit deceptive because they are mimicking a small business brand. But I think the advantages are great for small Australian distilleries who get to make it for them because it's excellent cash flow for a business. a great cash injection for them to sort of get on their feet and, you know, invest in their own brands. A lot of um, the time when uh, small Australian distilleries are starting out, they don't realise how much money they need to get, you know, properly started and properly market their brand and the the route to market as well and, you know, getting their products on shelves. So I think, I'd rather private labels be made from, with Australian producers than overseas producers, if if that's possible. <laughs> but I know that doesn't happen. But um, I think in this particular case where I picked up the bottle, I was glad to see that it was actually made with an Australian-owned producer. So.
1: Kathleen Davies is a wholesaler and also sells Australian spirits direct to the public. You can read more about this story on the ABC News website and catch up on last night's Four Corners episode on ABC iview. But well, while the Tasmanian wine grape harvest is just starting, in New South Wales it's wrapping up, with all signs pointing to one of the best pickings in years. Growers have reported pulling high-quality grapes off the vines, while yields are up on previous seasons. But concerns remain on oversupply and prices. Hamish Cole reports. Wine
8: grower Bruno Brumble has seen a 50% increase in yields at his vineyard near Griffith in the state's Riverina. After a challenging few seasons with heavy rainfall and rising expenses, conditions could not have been better for him.
9: We uh, lost a fair bit last year with disease because of the uh, rain event. A lot of times we lost last year. We, whatever we did we couldn't do right. Um, and that's not only us, it's every other grower too. But this year things have been pretty good. Weather's cleared up and we've got beautiful sunny days temperatures have been fantastic like you know we haven't had a couple of days over 40s it's really been good growing seasons in the 30s and uh, it's been a fantastic year for grape brown.
8: It is a similar story in the central west. Picking started a fortnight ago and will continue until the end of March in the high altitude vineyards but according to Nick Seger the president of the Orange Vineyards Association it is looking like a great harvest.
10: From what we've seen um, both in the winery, the grapes having been picked, and what we're seeing on the vine currently, we're, we're all really excited about what the 2024 vintage is gonna bring. Uh, this year is, is quite unique. I think it's a bit different to what we were all expecting from the, the, the forecasts earlier on in the year, that were for a very uh, hot and dry summer period, where we've had more rain than was probably forecasted. And so that's presented some really nice conditions. So um, it's hard to compare one year to the other, but at the moment, as we're sitting here, just starting the 2024 vintage i think a lot of people around the region are very excited about some of the world-class wines that we can produce
8: with the forecast looking positive in the region it is expected to make for perfect conditions for
10: ripening we'll be harvesting here um, in the next couple of weeks and then likely go to the end of march but i think for all the growers from lower altitudes to higher altitudes across all different varieties we're all really excited about what this vintage is going to bring. The
8: concerns remain over an oversupply of wine, with Ribobank Australia reporting there is an excess of 2 billion litres of wine in the country. This has led to record low prices, in particular for inland red growers, with wine fetching $150 per tonne for some. Mr Bromble believes this is making the industry unsustainable.
9: Well, the thing is that prices are that low, where it's not sustainable, and uh, growers are in... Danger from getting
8: out. It's an issue that has been brought on, predominantly by the tariffs introduced by China in 2020 on Australian wine. A 280% tax was put on imports of the alcohol, causing a collapse in the $1.2 billion industry. But there are positive signs that there may be an end on the block on trade with China. In the next fortnight, the Australian Trade Minister will meet with his Chinese counterpart to discuss the tariffs with an aim of removing the taxes in March. If China does not, the federal government will resume its World Trade Organisation dispute. Hunter Valley producer Bruce Tyrrell believes the reopening of the market could not come soon enough.
11: Are they going to come back to drinking wine because they can get the wine they like? Hopefully, the answer is yes. It could mean up to a 20% increase in sales, which should be very handy right at the moment. But you know, I'd like to see UK and the States come back to the sort of levels they were before. We've gone out and found lots of other markets seriously opened last 12 months seven seven new markets but nothing's as big as china that's the that's a difference so we'll see uh the whole industry if they don't start buying again then there's probably massive restructure for the australian wine industry
8: but how hopeful producers are that a deal can be struck remains to be seen if
11: they don't drop the tariffs by the 30th of march we continue where we restart the action and the the world trade court or whatever it is so i don't think china wants that so i'd suspect that they will start opening doors i think there's only two products left so it's not we're not significant anymore it's a bit like backing racers just working out what politicians are going to do
1: <laughs> hunter valley wine grower bruce tyrrell ending that report from hamish cole let's get the latest from the hobart newsroom It's a good afternoon to Ellie Ward. Looks like uh, we don't have anyone there, so we might go straight to the Weather Bureau. We have Luke Johnston on deck. Uh, Luke, any rain around today?
7: I was just going to sit here and pretend not to not to be here to psych like you. But, um, <laughs> yeah, there's been a little bit of rain. So up to 9am this morning, we had some relatively light showers, about uh, mostly into the northwest, sort of two to six millimetres, more on more at elevated locations and since 9am no rain. For the remainder of today we might have some light showers about the uh, northeast and the west coast uh, with the possibility of some afternoon thunderstorms today about uh, western Tasmania. Not expected to drop heaps of rain sort of 3 to 8 millimetres at most Tomorrow, there'll be some showers about the north of the state, more likely about the northwest and the northeast, easing later in the day, and the possibility of some thunderstorms in the afternoon about the northeast as well. It does look a bit wetter tomorrow, sort of 5 to 15 millimetres, a little bit more with thunderstorms, but nothing too significant, and it does look like it remains fairly dry for southern Tasmania, although not heaps of rain
1: on the way. I was going to say, how long is that system going to stick around? Is it just tomorrow?
7: Well, tomorrow and then Thursday. Thursday's probably peak heat, if you will. Uh, northerly winds on, on Thursday will become fairly gusty and tend northwesterly during Thursday morning and afternoon. We're looking at temperatures reaching the, the mid-30s about the, the southeast of uh, Tasmania on Thursday with a, a late, relatively dry but cool change. So it looks like a mostly dry, hot, windy... Uh, with with elevated fire dangers on Thursday. Doesn't look like we'll get heaps of rain though. Uh, it looks like a fairly dry, uh, even for Tasmanian cold fronts.
1: Okay, and what about if you want to take the boat out today? What are conditions like?
7: Alright, out on the waters today, looking at northeasterly winds uh, in the range of, of 10 to 20 knots. Uh, tomorrow, winds will increase to 20 to 30 knots in the southeast in the afternoon and be more lighter and variable. Uh, in the in the southwest of the state, swell lies west and south. There's a southwesterly one and a half to two and a half metres today, decaying slightly tomorrow to one to two metres. Through Bass Strait, a westerly to one metre, and tomorrow we get a northeasterly coming into one metre as well. Up the east coast, there's a southerly one to one and a half metres, uh, decaying to below one metre tomorrow, and a northeasterly to around one metre, increasing to one to two metres uh, tomorrow. It's giving a wave height of two metres off the west coast at the moment.
1: Any warnings we need to be across?
7: Uh, today, tomorrow, uh, heatwave warnings current for the southeast district. It's mostly for that elevated heat on Wednesday and particularly Thursday. It's going to be a very hot night Wednesday into Thursday, FYI. Uh, also got a strong wind warning current for southern and western coastal waters from Tasman Island to Sandy Cape, excluding the southwest coast, and also for Storm Bay tomorrow.
1: Terrific. Thanks for that, Luke. Thanks, Larissa. Luke Johnston there at the Weather Bureau.
6: Ever wanted to know how to better control the chatter in your head? What happens when we let our most destructive emotions dominate? Or how you can get a better night's sleep?
1: But at night, it's often the first time that we've allowed ourselves to stop.
6: I'm Sana Kadar, and I'd like to take you on an exploration of the mental, the mind, the brain, and behavior. We
12: can also use our inner voice to do more complicated things in life, and there's variability with respect to how much we lean on it. All
1: in the Mind is a podcast that aims to enlighten you on all of this and more. Hear it now on the ABC Listen app. Coming up in the second half of the program, the last of Tasmania's premium cherries have left the state and by all accounts the season hasn't been
13: too bad. The big thing this year has been uh, the timing of of the lunar new year has worked out very well for the majority of Tasmania's cherries so we've been able to supply into the gift market. In Asia, and that's worked out very well.
1: We'll hear from a couple of southern Tasmanian orchardists in just a tick. At the top of the program, we heard from the head of Beega Cheese, Barry Irvin, about the closure of its better milk factory in Burnie. Some 10 million litres of milk will now be redirected to its plant in Lena Valley in the state south. Uh, Mary from Hobart has sent in a text. She says that uh, Lena Valley residents are very concerned about how many more milk trucks will be coming through our suburb, please advised. Thanks, Mary. We'll certainly uh, take a look at what's going on there with the redirection of those milk trucks and the extra traffic.
0: Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania
1: about 21 to 1 on the Country Hour. Let's turn our attention to livestock now because despite big falls in sheep and lamb markets in recent weeks, a leading analyst says there are reasons for optimism about future pricing. Both lamb and mutton markets have taken big hits with trade lambs falling from an average of 186 ahead a month ago to about 151 ahead today and mutton dropping from $88 to to 57 since the start of February. Matt Dalgleish is the director of episode3.net and he says increased throughput is a big factor behind the falls. Oh,
3: if you look back over say the last three weeks or the first three weeks I should say of February we've seen increasing uh, throughput at the sale yards on, across the east coast and significant kind of numbers. Um, if you look at, say, average weekly yardings for, for lamb over, over that first bit of Feb, we're talking you know, 226,000 head of lamb on average per week and about 125,000 head of sheep, so um, big strong numbers. Um, and, and If you compare those figures to, to, say, the same time last year, both for sheep and lamb, both of those are 28 per cent higher than last year, so you know, it's, a, it's a strong start and some of that extra supply, I think, is weighing on price. And, I mean, if you look at the indicators,
14: those graphs that represent the movement of price, you can see that they're, they're tracking down pretty starkly,
3: but, but what sort of price falls have we seen? So for trade lamb uh, you're talking about an 18% drop from the from the recent peak it was it peaked kind of at the start of the year mid January around 775 cents a kilo carcass weight and that's now sitting uh, at 636 so yeah an 18% drop and for mutton it's been a little bit more stark um, that's dropped about 33% uh, from a peak of um 313 cents uh, down to 209 so that's had it, taken a bit more of a hit. But um, oh, look, when you when you look at the volumes being presented, uh, you, you, know, you, you probably expect that it's going to play out a little bit on price. Those really strong numbers that I, I spoke about at the outset, if you compare the same type of um, volumes against the five-year trend, it's even stronger. Um, You know, say for lamb numbers are like forty-seven percent above the five-year trend for the start of February, and sheep are sixty-four percent above the five-year trend. So they are quite strong supply numbers, and you know, with that coming through, you'd expect some level of price decline. So I think all things in perspective, it's it's not a bad result, really. And this is probably a very simplistic take, but is it the case
14: that the price went up, so more people sold and now the price has gone down, or is there more throughput
3: just because that's the way production systems have worked out? Oh, no, I think it could be a combination, particularly as you get... For, like, we had a, quite a wet start to to summer, which was... Event was unexpected, I guess, to a degree, given some of the forecasts. But if you think of what's happened over the last, you know, well, into February, it has dried out a bit now, finally, in a lot of areas. So it could be a combination of that, you know, drier summer, actually, eventuating hotter temperatures, and and pasture starting to cure off completely. So I think, you know, combination of good pricing uh, to allow a bit of a bit of lightening of stock, and also maybe, you know, a, a, a slightly drier finish to the end of summer. Um, um, so people have lightened the load a little bit there as well and, and the price allowed them to do so and you know, get reasonable reasonable levels um, uh, you know, considering what the price was at when we saw those lows of last year. And of course the, the big price rises we saw early in the new year uh,
14: after coming off that very low base, I suppose farmers hoped that those prices would, would level out at that higher level rather than come back down but, but come back down they have.
3: Yeah, that's right. But like I said, all things considered, given the, the volumes, the very strong volumes, I think um, you know the price has reacted in a, in a fairly. You know, it's still signifying to me that the market's still pretty robust to have those supply uh, volumes coming through and, and having you know the the, the impact that has on price. You know, you could have you know if if, if if demand wasn't as strong as it has been at the start of the year, I think you know, if you look back to see how strong the export markets open for january and particularly for sheep and mutton had our strongest january on record i think for both of those for exports so there is you know that's one i guess silver lining that producers can be comfortable yes the price has come off but it's in the face of strong supply and and the reason probably why it hasn't come off as much is because um, the demand uh, out there on the export space is still pretty robust Okay, so given that point about uh,
14: relatively strong demand, the million-dollar question, of course, is where do you predict
3: markets to go from here? I don't see this kind of decline in price. Unless we continue to see really strong supply uh, ongoing, I don't think we're going to see it continue to slide. So I suspect we're going to see the normal uh, scenario that we see where prices kind of hold and start to firm up a little bit as we head towards winter.
14: It's it's a tricky one, isn't it, for farmers when we've got this volatility? People trying to make big decisions about selling or buying or or joining or not joining or, or whatever it may
3: be, uh, and and the market does unpredictable or, or volatile things. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess you know people that have been around in the game through a few different cycles and a few different kind of market um, you know pressures, they they would be familiar with these kind. Of, that's commodity markets. One takeaway you know is for the farmer to can, and the producer to consider is, is focus on the things you can. Have some control over, and a lot of that's the on-farm management, and like you're saying, you know, you, you, what you're doing in terms of your schedules and your joinings and what's happening, you know, on-farm in front of you. Rather than, you know, it, it is it is tricky to try and um, outpick the markets when it comes to price. It's good to have a you know have an eye on what's happening in that space, of course, and be aware of what kind of influences are impacting your commodity that's important to you. So those global factors like exports and demand and what's happening around the world that does have a, an impact. But um, at the end of the day, you know, it's one of those things. You you've got to control the things you can control and most of the time for the farmer it's what's on farm and just lastly matt a big picture sort of question
14: um of course a lot of negativity developed in the in livestock markets last year with with the price crashes and even with price rises i don't think a lot of that negativity is has necessarily dissipated but Uh, In the longer term, for people having a good look at their production systems and thinking whether they should be or how much they should be in the the meat producing game, uh, what would you
3: say to them? Uh, look, I think broadly when you look at the those longer term macroeconomic factors that influence the, the longer term trends they're not your, your kind of seasonal and month to month price fluctuations because they can be they can be you know, at the behest of things like this strong supply or, or, or short term kind of trends but the longer term outlook for red meat more broadly and sheep meats part of that is very strong um, so I, I think you know people that are considering their enterprise mix i think um, if you are already involved in livestock and you know even if if you've got a mixed op- you know mixed farm i think livestock and sheep meat in particular the the outlook longer term is, is a pretty robust one we've got so many markets that are keen for for australian uh, sheep meat products and there's such limited supply when you look at global players in that space that i think the um the longer term trends are pretty positive so you know i'd be i'd be looking to hang around in that space if i was in that game
1: That was market analyst Matt Dalgleish speaking with Angus Verley. To horticulture now because the nights are getting cooler and Tasmania's cherry growers have just shipped off the last boxes for the season. On his orchard in the state south, Andrew Griggs has had his eye on the premium end of the export market this year. He spoke with reporter Clancy Barlin about how the season went.
13: Yes, well, I think overall, I have to say, it's gone, you know, very well. I mean, cherries are a challenging crop, an exciting crop to grow. There's always some issues to deal with. Um, But I think the big thing this year has been uh, the timing of of the lunar new year has worked out very well for the majority of Tasmania's cherries. So we've been able to supply into the gift market in Asia and um, and that's worked out very well.
12: Yeah, tell me about exports and pricing. Have prices been a bit higher for cherries at the moment when you're exporting?
13: Yes look our, our friends in, in Asia um, you know they, they really value quality fruit and that includes cherries and um, and so and they're prepared to pay, you know, appropriate prices for for quality. Um, and so that's where our our target, our aim needs to be in Tasmania. We need to we need to be targeting the premium end of the market um and we you know we can do that um we can't necessarily do it every every year on every block but we can certainly we you know that's what we're trying to do so we we we, we want to be aiming to grow you know large hard sweet cherries and um that sounds simple but it's always (laughs) always very challenging so yeah
12: Uh, which countries are you exporting to at the moment
13: there's quite a range of countries that Cherries go to from Tasmania. Like for ourselves, Uh, this year we've exported to uh, to Hong Kong and Taiwan. Would probably be our biggest biggest two customers, Um, and then we've mainland China, Thailand, uh, Singapore, Malaysia, and Vietnam. Yeah, they'd, they'd be our main ones.
12: When did the cherry season officially end for you? Was it fairly recently?
13: Yes, very recently. So on um, on Saturday, we finished picking, and on Sunday, we packed them up, and on Monday morning, we dispatched the cherries on the refrigerated truck uh, to go out, and some of them would have flown out. The last of the export ones would have flown out uh, yesterday. Yeah, one 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 for Taiwan and one for Hong Kong, actually. Yeah. Uh, so I reckon the export figures should be should be look pretty good.
12: So you can take a a big deep breath and relax, or what's happening next? <laughs> I guess there's never really that much downtime, is there?
13: No, there's not not quite uh, that, but it's certainly you know, you know less intense now. We can um, you know scale back quite a bit. It, sort of when you're doing the cherries, you sort of just can't quite take. You know, you've got to keep your finger on the. On the pulse, there's always things that can go wrong. But now, yeah, we're getting ready for apples. We're, You know, we've got cherries to prune. We've got a lot of bookwork still to do to get things tidied up from the cherries.
12: Apples are a big time in Tasmania. What can we expect going forward?
13: Yeah, so apples, yeah, so they're looking really good so far. They're, um, we've had some quite, uh, it's been mild days and some quite cold cold nights in recent weeks which sort of feels a bit like autumn and that's been great like the, the, the galas in particular are looking really good good color uh, and they're growing well um, so we're expecting yeah some some nice apples.
12: How's labour going on the farm at the moment as well?
13: Yeah so um, for us we're involved in the uh, palm scheme um, and uh, and our our guys that come over from Vanuatu to help us now they do you know, the heavy lifting, the bulk of the cherry picking. Well, before cherries, a- apple thinning and raspberry picking and then apple picking as well. Uh, we've got four on the longer-term arrangement, uh, long, a four-year visa, and 48 uh, with the six-month one. They came in at the end of November and then they're going back uh, at the end of May. And we're working with our neighbour... R and R Smith to uh, he uh, some of the guys help him help help them with thinning apples and picking apples as well. It's a win win situation for everybody. Um, we we want to keep the guys have made you know big sacrifices to come here away from their families and they're here to work and send as much money home as possible. And so by having some flexibility in the scheme, which has only just in very recently come about portability arrangements. Uh, we're able to do that and um, yeah keep the guys going.
1: Andrew Griggs from Lucaston Park Orchards in southern Tasmania. Well, over at Old Beach, the last of the cherries have been picked on Nick Hanson's property and now the focus is on pruning. He spoke to our reporter, Meg Whitfield. I
9: finished June uh, 31, which was back on what we call normal schedule. So previous to that last year was a late year. We finished on 6th of February, so timing for cherries this year, a bit more what we used to. Um, season for us is always a season of two seasons. So pre-Christmas and post-Christmas. So our pre-Christmas season this year was very good. Uh, picked the tonnages we needed to, supplied uh, all of Tasmania through the retail outlets and our own retail outlet quite comfortably. Um, returns were good. And everyone was happy post Christmas was affected by rain a little bit more this year than last year. Last year we had a January with no rain, and this year we had a January late December with rain. So our pack outs were probably down maybe seven eight nine, ten percent this year um and even in one block, we failed to pick four hectares of cherries or fifty tons of cherries because the rain had no split so badly and that's the first time this has happened. old beach in 20 years that we've been growing cherries here but overall a good season not a great season but a good season in agriculture that's okay
6: how do you troubleshoot when something like splitting cherries does happen
9: you don't (laughs) so you just walk away when it gets to the point where your pick and your pack out is worse is is below what cost is then you just walk away Mm -hmm. you you learn to accept it and you go and we risk mitigate as much as we can but ultimately yeah if it can't pick it you don't.
6: And I noticed a sign on the door when I was walking in that you've fully staffed um how has it been actually getting?
9: No picking this was good this year I mean you know we don't talk about COVID anymore because it's just gone so we moved on but but certainly a lot of backpackers this year um which transcended into lots of feet on the ground we had no issues with with finding staff um those staff were good uh, and again because of the rains on the mainland we ended up with them coming over a fraction early mm. um, very low turnover rates on staff this year and high quality of good picking.
6: Did you get many local applicants as well? Yeah
9: no we we our, our preference is always local first so we always fill out pre-Christmas and our early January with all our local friends mm. and then when we get to a point where we're sort of exceeding what the local markets apply that's when our backpackers start to come online and that's probably the end of first week of January and we we run with a mixed crew from there on.
6: And so now that you've harvested mm. the fruit, what comes next?
9: Pruning. So we're flat out into summer pruning. We always say the cherry season doesn't finish until your summer pruning's done. Um, and we try to get that done by sort of twenty end of February, 25th, 26th of February, um, And we're on track to do that. So we've got sort of 20 people pruning out there as we speak to let the light in. That's about the only thing you get in the world now that's free <laughs> is summer. <laughs> So we try and prune and let the sunlight into the buds and 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 do all do all the things we need to do. Um, and then from there we will have a little mini mini break and then we'll we'll progress forward.
6: For many in the lead up to Christmas, in particular, the lead up to summer, it was very very dry in the mm. southeast. Did that have any impact on your practices?
9: It was better. The drier, the better. Wouldn't worry me if it didn't rain at all. <laughs> Um, you might no, be alone in thinking that. Yeah, no. No, it was extremely dry. I mean, here from last year, from January, first of January till, till I want to say, late September, we only had 140 mils of rain here at our beach with no one rainfall event greater than 8 millimetres. It was the driest... and I mean, we're dry here, but it was the driest spring, autumn, winter that we'd seen for 10 years. And in comparison to the year before where you bog a duck, it was... Um, Completely different. So it made it challenging for, for planting in the winter with not enough moisture in the ground. But for cherry growing, yeah, lack of moisture is not an issue.
6: And in terms of prices, how was that for the cherries that you were.
9: Yeah, it's a little bit early to tell you. We're still waiting for information back from the markets. But pre Christmas was good. We didn't put any of our prices up this year for pre Christmas from the last year. So we've held our prices for two years. Um, we just thought the economy was a bit tight, even though we've suffered. Um, a lot from price increases at the back end. We thought it was um prudent that we keep our pricing the same, which we did. Um post Christmas pricing through export and through the domestic market, yeah. A little bit early to tell yet. Yeah. But but solid. Yeah, so a little bit early to tell whether we're up or down on previous years. Pretty boring, all yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it's been a pretty smooth sailing, which many it. would be okay
6: boring, with, yeah. Boring, <laughs> good.
1: Boring is good. That was Nick Hansen from Cherries Tasmania in Old Beach. And uh, Meg is actually off to a couple of apple orchards down south. So uh, we'll be learning more about how that start of the apple harvest is going from Meg later in the week.